name's Rob. I'm one of the elders here at Will of Life. And uh, if I haven't met you yet, if you're one of the visitors, I just uh, hope to be able to meet you afterwards for a cup of coffee. It is good to have you here. And uh, we're beginning a new series now on the book of Esther. And uh, we love preaching through the books of the Bible because, well, for one reason, when we preach properly, can we put the, the house lights on properly? There we are. Oh, right. um, when we uh, preach through the... Um, when we preach topically, we often get stuck on the things that we love preaching about. And I have to admit, there are certain things that I do love preaching about. I love preaching about marriages, about raising kids, and I love preaching about the cross. So that's definitely not a bad one. But when you go through a book of the Bible, you're led by the scripture as to what you're going to preach on. And so that's why for us, preaching through books of the Bible is so important. that we're going to spend the next six weeks, I think, preaching through the book of, um, of Esther. If you haven't read it, I don't know what to say to you. Honestly, I actually sat with somebody, some, it was probably a year ago, she came and met with us, and I said to her, you know, like in the book of Esther, you get the book of what? And I was like, holy mother, I can understand Zephaniah or something like that, but the book of Esther, like one of those great narrative stories, and that's actually what I'm going to speak about today. So, just checking what the time is. And remind myself to do that before I start preaching, otherwise I have an open-ended other side of it. So when I was about 14 years old, I came to know the Lord. I came from an unsaved family. My mom and my dad did not um, follow Jesus at all. My dad had been a Catholic growing up. He, had, uh, he knew about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. And uh, he got divorced from his first wife and um, got excommunicated from the church. And so we had no real church upbringing at all. But by God's amazing grace, friend and myself got separated for a year, and uh, because he was away from me, he was able to be saved, because I think together we were really dangerous, and he got saved while I was away from him, and when I came back, I met this friend of mine, completely different person, and within a few months, I can remember giving my life to the Lord as well, and I, I, I absolutely fell in love with Jesus, and I, and I love him to this day, I have loved him, and um, uh, there was one period, which is what I'm going to talk about in a moment, where I just grew quite cold towards him. But, uh, but even as we're worshiping this morning, friends, I want to tell you that do not come to church just because you, you, it's something you need to do. I want to say, I, like, um, I mean, I'm glad you come to church. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But we come to church to encounter Jesus Christ. We come to church to worship at His throne. We come to church to stand with others who love Him. And as we're worshiping this morning, I just have such an incredible sense of the presence of Jesus in the room. I'm not going to say with you, but I, I could feel him with me this morning, ministering to me. And at 14, I fell in love with Jesus. And then I went through school. I, I served him. I was a leader in the SAS school. And I, I got to varsity. And um, it was just like I couldn't figure out where I fitted in with my Christian life and with Jesus. And I think part of the problem was I had Jesus in this Jesus box. And I had all the other parts of my life in the other boxes. And, uh, and eventually what happened was I just... I just drifted into a lifestyle where I forgot about him. It wasn't that I was hostile to God. It wasn't that if somebody came to me and said, is um, Jacob. Um, it wasn't that I said, um, uh, if somebody came to me and said, do you believe in God? That I always said, no, of course I, no, I, I do believe in God. It was just that I didn't think about him. I didn't think about him for a day, and I didn't think about him for a week, and I didn't think about him for a month, maybe, where I was just, I was just living my life. And it was almost as if, and I know this is me, David, this is not God. He was as real throughout that period and showed himself, as I look back now, in his interventions in my life to be as real then as when I was passionate for him. But it was like 
God stepped back like this behind the curtain. And that's actually a little bit what this book of Esther is like. You know that in the book of Esther, God is not mentioned once. He's not mentioned by name or by title once in this book, which is pretty amazing because it's in the Bible. And we know the Bible is actually the story of God. So what is going on with this book? It is in this book and probably more than almost any other book, the providential, the behind-the-scenes working of God in his people and for his people is more seen than anywhere else. And um, I think it's a little bit like what Paul says when he says, fix your eyes on what is unseen and not on what is seen. And we can walk around the world all the time fixing our eyes on the things that are seen and missing the things that are unseen. They turn these spotlights on top there and drop the house lights. I just won't be able to see you at all. And uh, you're still there. Nothing changes about the reality that you're there, but I won't be able to see you. And maybe because I think there's no one there, I might pick my nose or something like that or something weird, like, the, like when you lived out a glass bowl. The one time I was, I was working at, um, I used to work for a company called Deloitte, and I was out at a client, and I was, I was really concentrating on this problem that I had, and I was trying to get this thing to balance. And if you know accountants, there is no greater joy in the world than balancing something. So I'm like working on this thing, and I'm, I'm like got into my own little world. And I actually, I was in this glass bowl of an office house, and I hadn't heard a whole lot of people come into the outside area. They were having a cocktail party, all the staff at the company that I was working for. But the auditor was sitting there smashing away. And eventually, I got it to balance. And I jumped out of my chair and I started to dance like this in my office like this because it was working. And I looked up and I saw there were all people around that stopped what they were doing and they were watching what was going on with me. And they gave me a good round of applause, which is amazing. But we see in the book of Esther, it's like, like, um, it's like we, we become like me in the office or me standing here with everything blacked out. It's the, the, the role of God is not explicitly laid out pretty much like what many of us experience in our lives, even in this city. Right now, this morning, in fact, probably an hour ago, Matthew, my son, who's in school in South Africa, was standing up in his assembly of the school, and uh, this is what his task was today, to read a, a passage of scripture. He was going to then um, do a short devotion on a passage of scripture, say a prayer, and the whole school would stand up together and say the Lord's Prayer together. See, there, God is explicitly and blatantly seen what, even though some of the kids don't worship Jesus and some of them worship other gods and other things, God, the God of the Bible is explicitly seen in that context. That would never happen in one of our schools here. And uh, we live in a city where God is not obviously and blatantly seen. And like the book of Esther, it's quite easy for us to come to the place where actually God is always behind the curtain and unless we're paying attention, we don't understand what it is that he's doing in this city. And, and Dubai is one of those cities where it's like, um, I said this at the end again, it's like, but we don't have a Christian king. There is a king in the city, um, Sheikh Mohammed. He's a good man, but he's not a Christian king. This is not a Christian nation. The Lord's Prayer is not spoken in public places. We don't have banners up declaring the wonders of our king or even signs so that you know where the church is. We're hidden away and things like that. And yet, we have to ask the question, is God at work in our city and in our context in the same way that he was at work in the context in, um, in the Esther as well. And so I believe there's an invitation for us to collaborate with God by faith. That's what I think Esther is calling us to. Will we collaborate by faith? Will we embrace our destiny? We're not here by accident. And that I hope you'll see this morning. And that you will see past 
the veil that covers us and be able to see the spiritual reality of the world that we live in. Now, we're going to get into the story, and, and uh, my job today is actually to paint the big picture. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you who wins in this book, okay? And so, we're going to do another five preaches after this, and, and everyone, Nat's going to preach, and Angela and Hannah are going to preach, and Tanya's going to preach, and I think that's all. And they're going to unpack the scriptures here for us and, and uh, really do something wonderful. But I want to paint the sweeping picture today. So, Esther is, a, is an amazing story and um, beautifully told. And uh, I don't know how many of you have seen that movie, um, One Night with the King. Have any of you seen that? Okay, so guys, keep your hands up. Tell me your wife made you watch it, eh? She did, eh? Oh, your girlfriend or whatever. Because this is a romance movie of note. And what they do, won't you put up the next slide, is um, they, in a sense, if you go to the next one, they, um, this, this is a scene from the movie. And that's Xerxes right there, the man that looks exactly like Jesus. And, um, and there's one scene in the movie where, um, they say to her, I was watching the trailer again, I, I have watched the movie, Lynn and I enjoyed it, I got the kissing afterwards for us and stuff like that, so it's always good to go see a romance movie with your wife, because that's where the, the key statistics, anyway, so we watched this, and there's this one scene where um, Xerxes, I think Xerxes or a eunuch says to her, what would you do if you were offered the whole kingdom? And she says, I wouldn't accept it, all I want is your love. Oh, of line that's in place. And the problem with this kind of understanding of the book of Esther, as much as you might love the movie, and I want to encourage you, it's free on YouTube, you can see the whole movie on there, go watch it five times if you want to. But what it does is it takes a book that's real and raw and gritty and tough like our lives are, and it turns it into some sort of Hollywood romance book. And the problem with comparing our marriages to Hollywood is, is in Hollywood when when, uh, when romance goes on, it's like Ken and Barbie the whole time, the perfect guy and the perfect girl, and no one else can ever measure up to such things. Esther is not perfect. Mordecai is not perfect. The situation is not perfect. It's hard and it's horrible. And in this book, we, 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 uh, we come across a man who literally wants to annihilate every living Jew from the face of the planet. And uh, we come across a king who is not like this, a, 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 a prediction of Jesus and handsome Persian-looking man with his eyes like this. In fact, Xerxes features in another film, and this film is called 300. Now, that is the most romantic movie you're ever going to see. If anybody, honestly, a friend of mine came through the one time, and he said to me, him and his wife, said, look, we want to, we're going to go out and hire a DVD. It was still in the days of the DVDs. Um, can you recommend one? So I said, I get 300. It's a beautiful love story. And they did! <laughs> so they, they went and hired this video, and they stuck it in. He put his arm around his wife. She was so happy by the end of this movie. But she was, I kept waiting for the love part, and it actually is in the beginning. There's a whole point before he goes to war where he kisses his wife. That's the love story. And for the next two hours, it is just blood and fighting and war. And it's an amazing movie. Anyway, I don't think the Xerxes in this movie look more like the one that he would look like. Why don't you go to the next slide, please? That's him. And wouldn't you ladies love to be married to that man there? Do they like that? A bit of a, ooh, a few, a few nose rings and cheek rings and, and head rings and whatever else he's got going on. Xerxes was the, the, the leader of the Persian Empire. At the time, the greatest empire covered um, what was really most of the known world at that point. It went from Ethiopia 
in Africa, all the way across to the borders of India. It encompassed in its reign um, Israel and Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was under the reign. And, and what had happened was, um, even before the Persians had ruled over this territory, when the Syrians had gone and had conquered that nation, they had taken the Israelites and they scattered them into all of the, of the nations. And then the Persians came in and took over that empire. And so you've got this defeated nation of Israel, this broken city called Jerusalem, and these Israelites spread out all over the country. And the capital of this empire was a place called Susa. Why don't you go to the next one, please? And uh, Susa is actually our Zach. It's, it's our neighbor. We are neighbors to Susa here in Divide. This is our territory, people. This book is set in our backyard. It's only 650 miles from us. You can cycle there. It's easy. And it's based in... Um, in that territory, that blue boundary, there is, is modern-day Iran. That's where they were. That's where the Persian Empire was. And Xerxes was a ruler of a heathen nation. He didn't care about the Hebrew God. He didn't care about the God that we call Yahweh, that we call our Father. He had no regard for him. He was a pagan. He worshipped false gods. He was a brutal leader. That um, one of that movie, 300, was actually Xerxes leading, leading an army and they, they quibble as to how big it was, somewhere between like 300,000 and 2 million. Quite a big range in terms of numbers. But he led this massive army to go and conquer Greece. And uh, I don't want to ruin it for you. Go see that movie 300. Get some popcorn. Sit down with your wife. Put some romantic movie on the background and play 300. It was a great movie. And, um, and this is where Xerxes was. And, so, and this is where the story gets set. Next slide, please, Clint. And so the flow oh, oh yeah, I'll Mordecai and Esther, let me introduce them to you as well. Mordecai is a, is a, um, a Jewish man that uh, was, um, his family had been brought into um, Persia in, as part of the exile, probably a couple of generations before, and now he had grown up in exile. He, his father's name was Jer, and his uncle's name was Abihail. It was really close to Abigail, which is quite worrying for a man. But anyway, his name was Abihail, and uh, his, uh, Abihail and his wife, who is not mentioned, die. And their daughter, Hadassah, is left orphan. And so her cousin, Mordecai, like an uncle slash father slash cousin, raises her as his own. And somewhere along the name way, she gets another name. She gets the name Esther, which is uh, a name that would have been local for that area and easy for people to access and things like that. But she is a Jewish girl raised by her uncle. Next slide, please. Get the deep going there. So this is the flow of the story. I nearly called the title of my preach for four feasts and a funeral, because that's basically what this is, and uh, the first feast here is uh, Xerxes' feast. Xerxes, as I said, was a, had incredible power, and this feast is just a show-off for Jews. So you know like those Russian propaganda posters where they, they stick out these links through all these army like this, and the tanks and those missile carriers go along like this, and they, they really are showing to the world, look how powerful we are, look how amazing we are. That's what Xerxes was doing. It was a 170-day kind of celebration that ended with a 780 day with a seven day feast at the end of it and there was there were gold goblets there was wine on tap there was um, Kentucky fried chicken as much as you could eat there was like like everything that uh, somebody with uh, no taste could dream of and um, but it was just an expression of pride and Xerxes was a proud man and one of the things that he was proud about was his his wife his queen Vashti who was this incredibly good. Uh, she apparently had uh, once been Miss New York, and uh, she was an unbelievably good-looking woman, and so he is having this feast, and he thinks, I'm going to bring her out, the rest of the, everyone 
just see, I fuck my watches and be jealous of me and think, what a, what a man, what a man, what a money, money man I am, you know. So Vashti asked, and Vashti says, I'm not coming. I'm not going to be your object to be put on display, whatever it was she said. I've got a wife who's just stubborn. She's a silly woman. And uh, I, so he's the king, baby. This is dirty. This is not like, like the way that you maybe think of your husband. This is dirty, the king. People will die when he says they're going to die. It doesn't matter if you're the queen. When he calls you, you'll come. If he doesn't come, you're no longer the queen. Game over. Put her to the side. And so he follows this, um, the plan of his advisors, which is to um, kick her out the, the, the royal bed, so to speak, and he's going to find himself a new wife. And so they select the most beautiful ladies of all the land. They send them into this beauty treatment, this um, extreme makeover kind of thing, and they get uh, perfumed like just powdered, earrings, all that sort of stuff, whatever it is that ladies do to beautify themselves, and they kind of go through the whole process, which takes some time, and Esther is one of those that's chosen to be in this harem of the king. Oh, what a glorious um, calling. And uh, so Esther is uh, beautified, and, uh, and what happens is actually Esther is chosen to be the queen. She's one of those that spends the night with the king, one night with the king, and out of it, it says in the scriptures that, that she actually becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. She's put into a position of extraordinary influence. But remember here, don't think of this like, like a romance novel. Like this is so easy and it's exactly what I wanted. She's married to Dirty. Dirty still has a harem. It says at one point that she wants to go meet with the king. He hasn't called for me for 30 days. She can't just go and speak to her husband. Honey, honey, are you home? She can't do that. She's she has her place, and when he wants her, he'll call for her and spend time with her. When he doesn't want her, he'll call for whoever else he wants, and he'll spend time with them. This is the call of God is not always an easy thing to be in and to even understand. But we see that this was of God because it says, um, go to the next slide, read that she came into power because of favor. In uh, Esther 2, verse 8 and 9, it says that she won favor with the eunuch. This is the guy that... Um, a little bit less of a man than some men would like to be, and his job was actually to make sure that he prepared these women for the king, and, and she won favor in his eyes. Then it says that she won favor in everyone's eyes. The other women that were part of the harem with her and servants, she won favor in their eyes. And then finally, and most importantly, in this case, she wins favor in the eyes of the king. And remember what Leo said to us last week about the favor of God, that the favor of God is what, um, is what God puts on us to what is, why does he put it on us? To lead us to? Anybody listen to Leo last week? To lead us to our destiny. The favor of God comes upon us, not so that we can go, Woo! Now I've hit the big time. Not that. The favor of God comes on us so we can take another step, and another step, and another step towards our destiny. And sometimes it's tough. I mean, I'm sure it was, it was many good things about being the queen of Persia. But it, and, and the Bible does say that um, Dirty loved her, and, uh, and put a favor on her as well. But she was still the queen in a pagan empire, a woman who loved the Lord and wanted to worship him. She's caught up in this thing. Sometimes the favor of God comes upon us to lead us into our destiny, but it's not always easy. And friends, but, but the fact is it was a destiny because a little bit later on, Mordecai is going to come to Esther when the, the Jewish people are under threat, and he's going to uh, ask her to intervene, to use the position she's in to intervene. And uh, he actually says this to her in uh, it's, uh, chapter 4 and verse 14. He says this to her, how do you know you didn't come to power or you didn't become the queen with just this 
the fire of God comes upon us to lead us into our destiny. And friends, God has brought you into a particular place that you can walk in your destiny as well. See, the thing about this book is it seems so random. Why a Jewish girl in that city, why would she become the king? But God is setting up destiny to accomplish his purposes. And uh, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Just one more little piece. After she's queen, we, uh, we come across Mordecai doing what Mordecai does best, which is sitting on his bum. Apparently, that's how he becomes a hero. He's sitting at the king's gate. Every time you read about Mordecai, he is sitting at the gate of the king. I'm not sure what he was doing. Maybe he was like an elder that was giving out advice and making judgments. Who knows exactly what he's doing. But he's sitting there at the gate. And he, he overhears, as he's there at the right time, he overhears two men plotting to assassinate the king. Now, this is real because Xerxes in history actually does die because he's assassinated by the head of his royal bodyguard. And so these threats were obviously coming up again and again against the king. Mordecai hears about it. He tells Esther. Esther tells whoever needs to know about it, the FBI or something. And the FBI investigates, finds it's true. They arrest these men. They kill the men. And they make a record in the king's book about what Mordecai has done. And then soon later, I see how incredibly important that is. But you know what Mordecai receives at the time for that? No reward. No acknowledgement. Nobody cared that he had done it. And sometimes when we are fulfilling the destiny of God in our lives, maybe in your office place, maybe in your home, maybe here, there, or wherever, there's things that you do that you I'm doing this for the Lord, and there's no reward, and there's no acknowledgement. You're thinking, well, that doesn't matter. It's been lost. Friends, it matters. God, and I'll show you in a moment why. Firstly, we meet a, a guy by the name of Haman. Haman is the, he's definitely the bad dude in this whole story. Haman is, um, he's, he's wealthy. Like, you can't imagine how much money this dude has. He has got cash. Um, I don't know if he was good looking or not. Who knows? But he had uh, 10 sons, so he was obviously, he had a good relationship with his wife, I would assume. Um, and he had a wife, and he had, so he kind of had everything going for him. And then more than that, it says that Xerxes promotes him to second in the kingdom. So it's Xerxes, and then it's Haman. He's like this man of incredible stature. And one of the things that comes with the stature is that as he walks along or rides along, everybody around him has to bow. So wherever he goes, imagine walking through the streets and people are just bowing down before you wherever you go. And Mordecai's heading, uh, not Mordecai, um, Haman's going to the palace the one day and everyone's bowing except for this one dude called Mordecai who's right at the gate of the king and he doesn't bow. And I don't know why he doesn't bow because obviously there were many other Jews that did bow. Maybe it was something God had told him to do. Maybe it was on principle. Maybe he liked the three Hebrew boys that, that we read about in Daniel, saw it as an act of worship and didn't want to worship Haman, but he doesn't. And this gets up Haman's nose. And next week I'm going to preach about um, how powerful a fence is for making up a king in the hands of Satan. And he just gets offended. That's all that happens. He gets offended by this guy. And he will not let it go. He grows to hate Mordecai more than he loves anything else. And uh, his hatred is so great that he doesn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wants to kill all of the Jewish people. Now I want to just stick Esther into the context of the scripture. Go to the next slide, please. See if this works. Okay, the next slide. And so this is Esther, where it fits in in the in the in the chronologically within the, the Old Testament and then into the New Testament in a moment. And so we see that Ezra, it fits right into the middle of Ezra. 
And what had happened, obviously, is Adam and Eve had sinned. You're about you're going to get the, the the Bible in a minute here. Adam and Eve had sinned, and God said, "The seed of the of the woman will crush the head of Satan." And He promised a deliverer and a Messiah for people. And right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden, we see this. Um, put the next slide up, please. We see this um, scarlet thread beginning to weave its way through the story. And so, there, like that. Amazing, eh? So this scarlet thread starts with Adam with a promise that there's a deliverer coming. And it goes throughout the scriptures. We get to Abraham, and Abraham offers his son Isaac upon the altar, the son of the promise, not the son of his labors, the son of the promise. When, when Abraham was dead in his body and Sarah had no possibility of having a child, this miraculous son comes. Abraham offers him on the altar. God says, it's fine, you can keep him. I want another son of yours later. And the scarlet thread continues to be worked out. And Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob has these sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes of Israel are, um, eventually end up in slavery in, um, in Egypt. And uh, Moses is raised up as his deliverer. And he, he, uh, the Passover festival is, uh, Passover feast is um, instituted or, or, um, and, uh, and it's a picture again of the blood of the lamb and the scarlet thread continues to be told in the story like this. And then we, what happens is they have this incredible king called David who is the true king of Israel and his son, the son of David who one day rule upon his throne forever. And then we get, uh, they, there's, there's bad kings in, in the northern kingdom and, and eventually bad kings in the southern kingdom and just before this time in 586, BC, the northern kingdom falls completely, and they scatter throughout this province, these provinces, these 126 provinces of Persia. And the devil thinks to himself, if I can break the thread like this, if I can break the scarlet thread, I can stop the plan of God to save his people, to save us like this. And so the devil's plan is right behind us. See, we, we meet another supernatural character in the story called Satan. Look at Haman's declaration. This is what he writes up and sends to all the provinces. This um, kind of command, next slide please, Steve. Is, um, he says this, letters were sent by couriers, FedEx, to all the king's provinces with instructions, listen to this, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, uh, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. What does that sound like? It sounds like John 10, 10. Jesus says the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And the same one that was working in the, that we read about in the New Testament that wants to kill, steal, and destroy was at work behind the scenes, behind the curtain, working through Haman to actually destroy and to, to break this scarlet thread. And here's the power, friends, is that that scarlet thread continues to flow through even into our life today. Our lives have this thing running through us. We are who we are, what we do is a part of it. And when walking the park this morning, pray for you because there's much need to pray for people in this church. And uh, I was praying for you in the meeting this morning, walking along, trying to get my heart right around this message. And uh, I see this lying on the ground. Amazing. Can I come for a minute? The day that I preached about the scarlet thread, this scarlet thread, that's red actually, lying on the ground like this. And I just, as I was walking after that, I began, everything that was red just caught my eye. I wonder if this week, as you go about your business, as you do whatever you do, that you start to understand that I'm a part of the scarlet thread. That the way my life fits, is um, mirrors, fits in 
of the story because there is a redemptive narrative that runs from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation, and we are a part of that. The book of Revelation is not completed yet. We're in that time. This is our story. You in Dubai is a part of the scholar story. There's a destiny upon your life that God wants you to embrace because if you don't, his, his thread will continue. God will accomplish his purposes, but he wants to accomplish them through you. And every time, I couldn't believe it when I saw it today. It's a reminder that, that our lives are part of that scholar thread. We are part of what God is doing in this time. So what happens is, um, let's see where I am right now. I want to just wrap the story. Go to the next slide, please, Tim. So what happens is, Haman makes this declaration. This dude has got cash. He goes to the king and he says to him, I'm going to pay some money into the king's treasury so that the Jews will be all killed. So don't worry about the cost of killing them. I'll take care of that thing. So he says to the king, I'm going to put 10,000 talents of silver into the treasury. You know what that is worth in today's money? 10,000 talents of silver. If you had 10,000 talents of silver sitting in your back garden, you would have 375 million U.S. dollars. He put 1 billion dirham plus into the treasury of the king because he was offended with Mordecai. Because it wasn't him. It wasn't just him. The, de- the devil takes that offense, and, he, and he, when he grabs a hold of it, he begins to use it for his destructive purposes. And that's what he does even in the church as well. And so what happens is this decree goes out. Mordecai comes to Esther. He says to her, Esther, you're going to need to go to the king and, and help us. You need to do something. We are, we are lost. We need to appeal for mercy from the king. So she says to him, I can't do that because you can't just come into the presence of the king. This guy's a dude. You know what I mean? He's, he's, he reigns supreme. And he's got this law. And the law of the Medes and Persians were irreversible. Once they made a law, you couldn't turn the law around. It had to become. And one of the laws was that you couldn't come into the presence of the king unless you killed him. And the only exception in the law was that the king extended his chest to like this. And he said, okay, I accept you need to come into my presence. And she hadn't been called for for 30 days. And if Jesus went into his presence like that, she could end up being as insolent as that she was before her, and she would lose her life. And then Mordecai says to her, but if you, if you don't do this, you're not going to be saved. God will save us. Our deliverance will come. Actually, he doesn't say God will save us. He just says our deliverance will come from somewhere. If not from you, then from somewhere else. Your question is whether you want to be a part of that. And friends, I think that's the question for us this morning. Is God is doing something in this city. God is doing something in this nation. God is doing something with your neighbor. God is doing something with the, the nations around us. The question is, will you be a part of it or will you not be a part of it? And uh, Hannah and Angelo are going to preach on this and, and unpack this for us so we can come to understand what it means to walk in the destiny that the Lord has for us. And then the next thing that happens is uh, Esther says, okay, I'll go and speak to the king. And so she, she's very brave and she goes into the throne room of the king and he extends his scepter towards her. This is wonderful. She's not going to die. And he says to her, tell me what you want. I'll give you anything, even up to half of my kingdom. And uh, she says, well, I'll, I'll tell you later. Always be careful when women say that, okay? <laughs> they ask you something. Women are very subtle. I just want to say this. She is so clever the way she does it. She's such a brilliant thing. So I'll tell you later, but can I just have a feast with you and one other person, Haman, today? Great. We'll be there. We'll be at the party. So she has this little intimate party, the three of them together. And uh, he says to her again at the party, what do, you, what do you want me to do? Anything up to half the kingdom. She says, well, let's have another dinner banquet tomorrow night with Haman again, and then I'll tell you what I want. She's setting him up. She's drawing him into this. 
and she's also giving the people time to fast. So she had called on Mordecai and the rest had three days to fast. So over these, so she spread it out. So they were fasting and praying, obviously, during this time. And then uh, what happens is that night the king goes to bed. And remember the plot where Mordecai had uncovered the, the assassination attempt on, on his life. Watch what happens in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, That night the, the king had trouble sleeping. I don't think he had trouble sleeping. I think the Lord kept him awake. You know how often um, the Lord wants to keep you awake and keep fighting, 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 and actually he just wants you to actually maybe just spend a bit of time with him, spend a bit of time in prayer. Maybe if you wake up in the middle of the night, it's not just the fact that you had pizza two minutes before you went to sleep, Gigi. It's because you actually need... <laughs> it's because the Lord is waking you because he wants you to pray. That night the king had trouble sleeping, so he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign. This is like his Facebook profile, so you can go back and see all the amazing things that he's done. And in those records, I hope none of you do that. Eh? Go back through your profile and say, wow, geez, I'm amazing. <laughs> and in those records, he, listen to this, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot against two Jews um, to assassinate him. And uh, Colossians 2.15 says that Christ made a public spectacle of him. When God pre-prophesized uh, that was going to happen, and he takes, uh, now Haman had gone home, and he was like so, he was stinking mad because he had seen Mordecai again. And I'll talk about this next week, about how an offense just limits our life profoundly. And he, he was, he's telling his wife and his family, like this Mordecai this, and this Mordecai that, and they said, just kill him, just kill him. Go to the king tomorrow and ask for permission to put him to death. So he wakes up the next morning on his to-do list. Number one is kill Mordecai. Unbelievable. It's going to be a great day. Mordecai's going to die. In fact, he had a big gallows built seventy-five feet high. Like when I kill him, everyone's going to see him hanging and shamed and and a, and a, and a curse. And uh, the, and the, you can just see the demons rubbing their hands and the devil going, "Oh, we're going to take this man of God out of here." And and they 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 haven't seen how God's been setting up the future. That next morning, the king gets up after having had a good night's sleep after reading his Facebook profile and he and Haman comes into his presence and says, Haman, what do we what do we do with the man that the king wants to honor? So what do powerful people think when they ask a question like that? Well he's obviously thinking about me. That's what he says, oh the king wants to honor me. So he says, Well he says, you know what? What should happen is they should put him on one of the king's horses. And then you should put on him one of the king's robes. And then someone someone important should take that horse and, and lead around the city and go, see what happens to the man a king honors like this. And Haman's thinking, oh, I'm going to look magnificent on that horse. He's, he's already thinking about the selfies he's going to take while he's on the horse, like, like this and things like that. And then the king says to him, actually, that's a great idea. Won't you do that immediately? Go get Mordecai and put him on the horse. And go get Mordecai and put one of my robes upon him. And you lead him around the city. And so he takes Mordecai around the city like this. Can you imagine how he's burning? And he says he made a public spectacle of the enemy. As he goes around, he says, this is what happens to the man that is honored by the king. And Haman is almost like beside himself. It cannot possibly get any worse, except it does. Because Christ not only made a public spectacle of the enemy, he triumphed over him at the cross. And this redemptive thread is is running continually through the story. And so it comes to this point where, where Haman comes to the dinner that night, just about over the embarrassment of leading Mordecai around the city, and, the, and, and Esther says, the king says to Esther again, what do you want? Anything now. He's like, like desperate to give this guy. He says, I just don't want to die. Is it okay if I don't die? And my people
people that are with you because an order has been sent out for us to be killed. And it's like, Jesus, you set this thing up. And he points to Haman and he says, no. And at that moment, the blood drains from his face and he knows that he's done. One translation says, the servants put a, 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 a mask over his face and drag him away. And that gallows that he had built for Haman to hang on, he actually ends up hanging on that which he does. And uh, 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 the ring that Haman had, the king had given his ring to Haman so he could pass the law for the slaughter of the Jews is now given to Mordecai so that he can write the law so they can defend themselves. And for the two days before the slaughter is supposed to take place, the Jews um, take the initiative and they destroy everyone that is against them. And the, uh, and the picture is of God the Father giving us an authority against our enemies so that we can destroy all those, not people, not institutions on this earth, to destroy the spiritual forces that rail themselves against us. We have divine weapons to pull down strongholds, and every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ, Paul tells the Corinthians. And so they pass this law, and, and in these two days there is this, there's this um, slaughter of their enemies. They don't take any of their goods. They're not in this for the money. This is self-defense for us. And at the end of the time, they have this, 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 this celebration. You can imagine what it's like. This thing's been publicly put in the streets. They come into the city and it's like, and there's the poster, annihilate, kill, destroy. And when you've killed them, you can have their stuff. You can imagine some of the guys rubbing their hands like, woohoo, I can't wait until Wednesday. Wednesday's bugling day. And I'm going to go kill that guy and I'm going to take a Ferrari and then I'm going to kill that guy and take this. It's like, and, it's st- and, and they live it. They know it. There's nothing they can do. There's the law. They, they're free to do it. They're not. And so God turns the thing around completely. We were lost and now we found. We were blind and now we see. We were condemned and now we've been uh, declared innocent. And so this, they, they institute what's become the Feast of Purim. Which the, it comes from the word pure because when um, Haman chose the day of the slaughter, he, he took a, a dark space, as we used to say. He cast lots. And he cast it like this, and that's how we ended up on the day of the slaughter. And that the, the Hebrew word, or the, the, maybe even the um, Persian word for casting lots is pur. And so Purim becomes the celebration that the devil cast a lot for our lives, but God had control of that thing. And uh, it's a celebration of gladness. And how's this? We didn't know this when we planned the series, but that celebration in the Jewish calendar takes place this year on the 20th and the 21st of March. And we're going to actually celebrate it, probably not on those days because there's midweek. We're going to celebrate it the week after here. And we're going to have a, a day of gladness and a day of sharing testimonies. I'm believing that God is going to begin to bring breakthroughs in our lives. I, I believe he's going to begin to reveal to you how your life is a part of the symbolic church. Friends, your life is not vain. Your life is not um, uh, pointless. Let's go to the last, second last slide, please, Chris. I want us to stop seeing coincidences as coincidences. I want us to begin to understand that when things happen that seem amazing, like, like friends, this lying outside the park, the day that I'm preaching on the scarlet thread, begin to see actually that God intervenes. God is at work. Stop seeing your promotion or demotion, your difficulty that you're going through, the trial that you're facing is just random. Actually, what is God doing? Maybe that's something that we can learn from. Do you guys know that Terence and Cal are our dear friends and um, have been on eldership with us for some time? They've taken a break from eldership. It was in part to recover from something that they went through a really tough season. They 
they went to to last year where um where they were going to adopt two children in fact they had to pretty much adopt feed the children and then the thing fell through and i don't know what i mean i can imagine how that just pulls your life completely down and then you you wonder lord what are you doing because it's dreadfully broken here in some way your your redemptive purpose in our life come to an end have i have i reached the end of the line here and uh no coincidences. There are God incidences to what God is doing in the midst of us. And because He's ever acting, He calls for us to collaborate. He calls for us to co-labor with Him. Sometimes you can't see it. Sometimes you don't realize that what you're doing is a co-laboring with God. I know some of you will send out a text message to someone and express um, um, uh, support or encouragement to them. Maybe you will um, you, you sow your finances or you give of your time or you put an arm around someone or you visit someone or in the workplace there's someone else that everyone else is rejected because maybe they're worthy of rejection and you love them anyway. You endure trials. You, you persevere when it feels like the right thing to do is just to give up. And in all of these ways, friends, you co-labor with God. There's a story that's being written with your life and it's hard to see it at times. That's why the book of Esther is written. It's hard to see where he's acting in this. But the scarlet thread runs through that life. And lastly is the, the understanding of our calling. That every step we take is a fulfillment of our destiny. It's not a place that we get to. It's not one event in our life. Our destiny is first and foremost to become like Jesus Christ. And God shapes us and readies us. And it's not, it's not like, like, oh, one day I'll be in front of 3,000 people. 
people or whatever it is that you dream or one day I'll have 2,000 followers on YouTube. That's not destiny. Destiny is to fulfill the purposes of God for your life that sees the scarlet thread going through your life and into the next generation and into the next generation until Christ returns to bring this extraordinary story of grace to an extraordinary end when we will celebrate for all time the feast of Purim, the celebration of Lamb. Won't you stand with me?
allow me to pray with you this deep thought as your Lord and Savior. To come in faith, saving faith, and to be born again in Christ Jesus. So why don't you guys just close your eyes for a second. This has done wonders. Those that need to respond, be distracted. There were other people are thinking. If that is you today, why don't you raise your hand where you are and say, I'd like to pray with you this deep thought to save you. Hold that up high. Thank you. Who else has that prayer? Wonderful. Why don't you pray with me then? Those that raised your hands, just pray with me. Father, I thank you for your son. Thank you for your plan of salvation that goes back to the very beginning of time. I thank you that you've always had me in your mind simply from the beginning. And that this saving history overrides all of secular history. This is what matters. And today I surrender my life to you. I come in repentance of living my own way, living for myself. And I choose today to surrender myself to you and to live for you. Thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that shed shed upon that cross. I thank you that he took my place, that he carried my sins and bore my punishment so that I could be forgiven today. And I thank you that today I've become your child, born again by the Spirit of of, uh, of God through the sacrifice of Christ become the son of the father. And Father, we pray for those that have prayed this prayer today, that you would raise your hand, that you rest upon them, that Father, you would lead them into such an assurance of your salvation, and uh, Father, that your, your, your great plan would keep them for the days of their lives. In Jesus' name we pray.